Welcome to the Siskiy Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Romans chapter 3 in verse 1. And you know, we're just going to jump right in tonight. Um, Yeah, we're just going to jump right into verse 1 of chapter 3. And it says, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Say, boy, that's kind of a strange place to start. (laughs) That's a weird, like, question to ask just out of the blue. What profit is it to be a Jew? What profit is circumcision? Well, you know, it it would be a strange place to, to pick up, but we're not really starting here. This is where we're picking up, rather. It's not a strange place to pick up. It would be a strange place to start. So Paul... He had just finished up condemning the Jew for their hypocrisy. Uh, that we saw in chapter 2, in verses 17 through 24. And then he came against them for putting their trust in uh, religious rites for salvation. This whole idea of circumcision. So Paul here, he's really still kind of just in the middle of this indictment against the entire world. And he began this indictment against the entire world that you are all guilty of sin. Every single person from every single walk of life, whether you are a Gentile or a Jew, you are guilty. And remember, he began in chapter 1 with the heathen, the one who was involved in all sorts of obvious sin, from adultery to murder. He said, you're guilty. You're guilty. Your excuse that you don't believe in God and therefore you're not subject to God, is null and void. Because you can plainly tell that there is a God because God has revealed himself through creation. So you, the heathen, are guilty for not coming under subjection to God. It doesn't matter if you believe in him or not. He's presented himself to us, and therefore that is on you. You are without excuse. Not only did God reveal himself to the heathen through creation, But through the conscience, through that internal uh, moral compass, that sense of right and wrong that we have internally, God has really revealed himself to the the heathen in that manner. We all have this innate sense of right and wrong, conscience. And when we violate that, and we've talked about this, and I don't want to get too far off track, but uh, our conscience is not like Disney paints it. We should not listen to it 100% of the time. It can be corrupted. But for the heathen, they had a sense of right and wrong, and they violated that. So they're without excuse. Uh, they have creation, they can see that God exists, and so they're without excuse for not being in subjection to him. And they have a conscience, they know right and wrong, and they have violated at some point right and wrong. And then he turns from the heathen, the the absolute obvious sinner, and he turns to the self-righteous, the moralist, the one who says, man, I've got my act all together, I'm pretty much a good person. And he says, you guys are guilty of the exact same things. You guys are guilty uh, as well. And do you know how incredibly offensive that would have been to a group of people who thought that they were good enough? Oh, the audacity. How dare you say I'm not good enough? Do you know how much I give to the church? Do you know that I mow my neighbor's lawn every single week? See, but here's the thing about the gospel. Is that part of it's incredibly offensive Because before we hear the good news that we're saved, we have to hear the bad news. And that is that we are wretched sinners. And our carnal nature hates that. And so Paul says to the moralist, you guys are just as guilty. 
You are just as guilty. All of you have lied or coveted. You have lusted after women. You have hated. Because again, it's not the degree or the frequency that we sin. Sin is sin is sin is sin. The wages of sin is death. If you have ever sinned in thought or in deed, you are guilty. And the wages of sin is death. And that's what Paul is saying. You moralist, you self-righteous, you are also without excuse because you have committed the same sins that you judge other people for. And then Paul turns to the Jew. The Jew, God's chosen people, uh, the most pious, the most religious group that he could uh, look to, they believed that heaven was secured for them simply because they were descendants of Abraham. These were the ones, as we talked about on Sunday, they believed that it was physically impossible for them to go to hell because they were circumcised. And Paul comes at them and says, listen, man, you guys are, are, are God's chosen people. You are to be a light and a guide teaching others. And that was God's plan for the Jew, to be that light, that they would see what they had going on, that the, that the heathen would desire that relationship with God that, that he saw with the Jew. But the Jew failed in their teaching God's ways to the nations around them because of their hypocrisy. And, call, and Paul begins to call out the Jew for that hypocrisy. He says, you guys were supposed to be the light. You guys were supposed to be the teachers. But hey, do you teach yourself the things that you teach others? In other words, you say, hey, do this, do that. But then you yourself don't do the things that, that you preach. You don't practice what you preach. And Paul says, you have given the Lord a black eye because of your hypocrisy. You're supposed to be sharing the news of God with the nations around the world. And yet they don't want to have anything to do with you because you are a bunch of hypocrites. And so Paul says, listen to the Jew. You guys are failing in your mission from God because of your hypocrisy. And you're, you're really leaning, you've trusted in external religious rites and activities for salvation. And that's what we looked at on Sunday. Uh, you know, this first section where Paul comes against the Jew about kind of failing in their, uh, you know, purpose that the Lord had set for them to be a light and to be a teacher. Uh, that was the first few verses that we looked at there in uh, the second chapter in verses 17 um, through 24. And then the next section that we looked at on Sunday was 25 through 29, where Paul really came against the Jew for putting their trust in religious activity, in, in, in religious uh, rites, that because they did this or did that, that they were saved. And the whole thing, it boiled down to circumcision. They believed just because they were circumcised that they were saved, really no matter what. But as Paul said, and as we discussed on Sunday, man, religious activity is meaningless. It's worthless unless it's a reflection of your heart. It doesn't mean anything if it's just for appearance, if it's to look holy. It means nothing if it's to appease if you're trying to earn God's favor. And so Paul made it clear that, that the possessing of the law for the Jew, man, you guys possess the law, and that being circumcised, it wasn't enough to save them. Right? You're God's chosen people. You've been entrusted with the law. You have all these religious rites and activities, but that is not enough to save you. Which brings us now 
to verse 1 of chapter 3. So with that in mind, Paul just coming against the Jew and saying, man, all of this religious activity, man, it means nothing. The fact that you are a Jew, that you're chosen, that you have the law, but it means nothing if your heart is not right. And so Paul really anticipating their questions kind of heads them off. Because what good is it to be a Jew then? If it doesn't save you, what good is it to be God's chosen people? If it doesn't save you. But what good is it to go through the, the religious rites and, and all of the, 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 the activity if it doesn't uh, add up to a hill of beans? And so what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? So Paul, he, he again knew that this question would be raised. What difference does it make? And he says... Uh, it matters greatly, right? And now, uh, again, religious activity, there's nothing wrong with religious activity. Oh, we're engaged in religious activity tonight. We came to church. We sang songs. We're doing some Bible study. Uh, many of us have been baptized. We took communion on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with religious activity. But religious activity is bankrupt if it's not genuine. Again, if it's to appear or to appease, it's worthless. If it's to appear holy or to appease God, it really doesn't mean anything. And for the Jew to be marked in the flesh, boy, what a wonderful thing it was to be circumcised if it meant what it was supposed to mean, if your heart was set aside for the Lord, if you're walking after your God and not after your carnal nature. Same for us. What a wonderful thing it is if we're baptized, if we're walking with the Lord. If there really has been that internal transformation, same thing with bapt or not baptism, but with communion, uh, all the things that, that we do, all religious activity. And so this question that the Jew raises, man, who cares then? What's the point? Paul says, boy, it, it, it matters greatly. And he says in verse 2, much in every way, chiefly to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithless, faithlessness of God without effect? Their faithfulness, pardon me. See, I'm supposed to be wearing my glasses, but I keep falling off my face. So it's either fiddle with the glasses or mispronounce a couple words. I have chosen to mispronounce a couple of words. I apologize in advance. So I'll read that again because God is not faithless. He's faithful. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And so Paul says, you know, to the anticipated question of the Jew, well, what difference does it make? What good is it even to be a Jew? What good is it to be circumcised? Paul says, well, it matters a great deal. And he says it matters chiefly, because you've been entrusted with the word. And I love the way that Paul does this. He says, well, well, first of all, uh, you know, it's profitable because you've been trusted. And so you're always waiting for the second of all and the third of all and the fourth of all. But he just stops with that one point. The first of all, and that's it. But that's enough. See, they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. You were given the oracles, which literally means the entirety of the Old Testament. That is what Paul is getting at. You guys have been entrusted with God's word. You received the words of the true and living God for 
all of humanity. Uh, you have creation, the Jew does, as a reference point. You have conscience as a reference point. But you have the written words of God all laid out, and you guys are the guardians. You guys are the stewards of God's word. And the Old Testament is more than just a, a bunch of poems and songs and, and a record of, of history or clever stories that have wonderful morals built into them. Now, uh, the Old Testament, man, it's the word of God. It, it, and it contains within it the gospel. Uh, the truth, the scarlet thread that we talk about. And we've gone over this recently, but I want to take a few minutes again to go over it tonight. Because it's so important as Christians that we have this nailed down. If you were to say, if someone were to come to you as a Christian and say, Hey, I want you to point to Jesus in the Old Testament. I've heard of this scarlet thread thing. Where is Jesus? Where is the gospel even mentioned in the Old Testament? How would we do? People say, Pastor Jeremy, you repeat yourself all the time because I want you to get it. We need to have things repeated. And so this idea that they had the oracles of God, they had the Old Testament, they had the gospel really spelled out for them. And we see the gospel clearly again First of all, at the very beginning of the Old Testament, in Genesis 3, 15, uh, in the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It's the first mention of the gospel. And this is Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your heel, and you shall bruise, or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this Verse in Genesis 3.15 describing what's going on between uh, you know, Satan and man really is this tension between uh, Satan and man because of the curse. It's because the curse uh, that Adam, uh, his sin, brought upon humanity. But because of that curse, there's that tension. There's the bruising of the heel and the crushing of the head. There's that Savior that is mentioned, that is buried in that story. That the seed of Satan... Right, that would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The, the, the seed of Satan is, is, are the evil men, and demonic forces that would betray Jesus and uh, beat him and condemn him and crucify him uh, and murder him ultimately on the cross. And, and that's the, the thing about the cross. It, you know, you, you've heard people say, well, you know, Satan thought he had victory when Jesus died on the cross. And that's the, the bite of the, the viper, if you will, in this, uh, this passage, the bruising of, of the heel. But the seed of woman, Jesus, would bruise or literally crush the head of the seed of the serpent or the serpent. Uh, because after he paid the price for the sin of humanity, he rose again on the third day, victoriously. Uh, bringing the... All of the scheming, all of the plans of Satan to none effect. It's the beauty of that passage. As you begin to unpack it, you see the gospel so clearly in it. You continue on through Genesis and you get to Genesis chapter 5. Just a boring old genealogy. And you say, oh boy, let's skip this one over. And we talked about this one a couple Sundays ago. When you read it out... In the, the Hebrew, you get all of the Hebrew names. Adam begot Seth, begot Enosh, and Kenan, and Mahalil, and Jared, and Enoch, and Methuselah, and uh, Lamech, 
and then Noah. It just goes through the gene. But when you read it in English, the meaning of those names, it says, man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. It's just interesting. When you read things out, you say, wow, that is really an amazing picture. You have the picture, of course, of Abraham and Isaac. As Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah to to sacrifice his son. And there in the thicket, they found a a ram as a sacrifice. Isaac was smart. Dad, we got everything for the, the sacrifice needed. But where's the actual sacrifice? And there was that ram. The Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And then they found the ram caught in the thicket by the horns. Of course, the Passover lamb. We've spoken a lot about the Passover lamb. That after 400 years of bondage, after 400 years of slavery, the nation of Israel, they were set free. And the story of how that freedom came about is a beautiful picture of salvation. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did. For you see, that last and final plague was the death angel. That because Pharaoh would not let God's people go because he was stubborn, God gave him warning after warning after warning. And that last warning was the tenth plague, and that was the death angel. That this death angel would pass over by night, and it would basically kill every single firstborn child. Egyptian, Hebrew, it didn't matter. Unless unless they took a spotless lamb and slaughtered that lamb and applied the blood to the doorposts and to the top, form of a cross. Beautiful picture. And then when they applied the blood to their houses, death passed over. They were set free from bondage. They experienced newness of life. What a wonderful picture of the gospel you have right there in uh, the Passover lamb account. And in fact, Revelation tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain uh, from the creation of the world, from before the foundations of the world. Uh, You have the whole entire sacrificial system that points to Jesus because they recognize that the wages of sin is death and that atonement was required. Uh, And that atonement that was required for blood was, or for sin was blood. Through the the sacrificial blood, there could be peace with God. Sins could be dealt with. And you had the burnt offering, the sacrifice of the burnt offering. It was a sacrifice that was completely consumed on the altar by fire. And it was a, a sacrifice that took place every morning and every evening. It was a sacrifice that was just complete. It was a sacrifice that was continual. It was complete that there was nothing there left over. And that's Jesus' sacrifice for us. Jesus is a sacrifice for us. Jesus left nothing. His sacrifice for us, he laid it all out. And his sacrifice for us is continual. You have the sacrifice of the scapegoat. This whole thing, so crazy. On the day of atonement, the one day of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. The sacrifice where they got the blood for that animal, it came from the scapegoat. So they would take two goats And they would cast lots. One goat would be sacrificed. That blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. The other goat, it would be uh, taken to the priest. The priest would uh, transfer all of the sins upon that goat. And the goat would be loosed into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That 
our sins have been removed away from us. The blood sprinkling, we'll get to that in, in, in just a minute as well. But the whole entire sacrificial system pointed to a Savior. And Hebrews gets into all of that. Uh, all of the articles in the tabernacle pointed to who Jesus was. From the materials, bronze meaning judgment, silver, redemption, gold, deity. Uh, outwardly, the temple was very drab. It was made of all these layers of coverings. And the outward layer was the most drab layer. It was just simple. It didn't catch your eye at all. But on the inside, it was all of these beautiful tapestries. Jesus, it said of him that he was really nothing to behold, but man, beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, all the colors in the curtains and the tapestries, white being purity, blue, heaven, purple, royalty, the red, the blood. As you go into uh, the, the, the tabernacle, you have the table of, of showbread. What did Jesus say? I'm the bread of life. You have the, the, the lampstand. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Uh, you have the, the table, the altar of, of incense. Uh, incense speaks uh, of prayer. Jesus is our intercessor, always, always uh, there, uh, the right hand of the Father, bringing intercession for us. The whole uh, sacrificial system, the tabernacle, all of it points to Jesus. The oldest book in the entirety of the Bible, who knows what it is? Job, that's an easy one. I was just trying to get your guys' attention. See, Job... 1925 to 27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What a wonderful thing. Psalm 103, we talked about this on Sunday. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. And then how? How does the Lord remove our transgressions from us? How is it that we are healed? Isaiah 53 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah calls it out that our sins would be placed on Jesus, that he would pay for them, and that we would receive his righteousness in return. And Psalm 22 describes what that looks like. Psalm 22 describes what the cross would look like a thousand years before the cross was even ever a thing. Psalm 22 starts out with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that ringing any bells? It should. So Jesus cried out on the cross. He said, But I am a worm and not a man. Even in that one line, you have the picture of the gospel. For that word worm right there is tola, and it means the crimson scarlet worm. It's a real worm in the Middle East, and the life cycle of this particular worm is mind-blowing. It's crazy. This worm, when the female worm is ready to lay her eggs, she finds a fence post or a tree, 
And she'll climb up on that tree and she will lay her eggs. And over that, her eggs, she will make this hardened crimson cocoon. And she will basically sacrifice her body so that her children will live. And after three days, that crimson cocoon, a crimson shell, it turns white as wool. And it flakes off and falls like a snowflake, leaving a red stain on the post. It's just crazy. Isn't that exactly what it says? Uh, that uh, though our sins be as scarlet. Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, said the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be uh, as wool. But Psalm 22 goes on to talk about that. It says, a a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. Uh, They shoot out the lip and they shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue himself. Let him deliver him since he delights him. Isn't that what they said to Jesus when he was on the cross? They walked by and said, hey, you believe, you're God, bring yourself down. Prove, show us. Psalm 22 says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up my, uh, like a pot shard, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. But one of the things that Jesus said on the cross is, I thirst. They, and this is where it gets crazy, right? Before a Roman cross was ever even remotely thought of, they pierced my hands and they pierced my feet. That's crazy. To describe the crucifixion like that so many years before it ever happened. And then they divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Don't you think that some of the Jews at the point of Jesus hanging on the cross who walked by and witnessed this sort of stuff would have been like, wait a second, hey dude, haven't we read about this somewhere? Like didn't Jonah gives us a glimpse of Jesus' death and resurrection. And they were stewards of the most precious treasure on earth. Why is it profitable to even be a Jew? Because you guys were given the Bible. You guys were given uh, the truth. You had the advantage because it was entrusted to you. The Jews had the cheat code. They, when I was in the sixth grade, my sixth grade teacher, Miss Collada, boy, I tell you what, she, I, I remember turning in some paperwork And it was on her desk, and there was the math book. This was no ordinary math book, folks. This was the teacher's edition. It had all of the answers under all the problems. And me and my friends, boy, we schemed as like we're going to rob a bank. Like, how can we get a hold of the teacher's edition? That's what the, the word of God was. It was profitable because it had all of the right information for them. Me and my wife just celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary this last week. And so for our 23rd wedding anniversary, we totally just ditched the kids, and we went up on a date. We went out to sushi, and we played some cribbage, but we wanted to do something that we've never done before. So we decided to go skydiving. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't go skydiving. We decided to play pickleball. (laughs) And so we went and got our our pickleball stuff, and, you know, we watched a how-to video on YouTube, so we knew what all the rules were. Here's the thing, unbeknownst to my wife, while she was shopping in Kohl's, I watched all of the advanced tips and tricks to pickleball. She's actually just finding this out right now. (laughs) So when we played, I knew where to stand, I knew how to serve, I knew what to do. 
She still almost beat me, by the way. I'm twice her size, and I knew all that. But see, I, I was armed with all of the information. I had the advantage, and that's what Paul is saying. You guys had the advantage being Jews because you had all the information, but they didn't believe. But they didn't believe. And, and so Paul goes on to say, well, well does their unbelief make God's... Um, we'll, we'll just read it. Verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Uh, and some didn't believe. By and large, they didn't believe. But did God's faithfulness hinge upon their belief? It didn't then and it doesn't now. What, does God's, what do God's promises hinge upon? His faithfulness. His faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless... He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And God established that it was his faithfulness and not our faithfulness uh, in the very beginning, in the covenant with Abraham, way back in Genesis. Is it Genesis chapter 17 or Genesis chapter 15? It's Genesis chapter 17. I, no, it's Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, after God had promised Abraham that that through his family, the nations of the world would be blessed and he'd have all of these descendants. This is kind of where uh, we pick up this conversation. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from you, and your body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven, and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit. And the Lord uh, and the Lord God said, how shall, oh, and he said, Lord God, this is Abram talking to the Lord, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How do I know, Lord, that all of your promises that you've said are going to come true? So God said to him, bring me three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to the Lord, and he cut them in two down the middle and placed them uh, each piece opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. And it goes through to talk about how, you know, the sun was going down and he, he, you know, kept the birds away and then he fell into a deep sleep and he has this vision of how they're going to go to Egypt but grow into a great nation. Uh, and then verse 17, And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river Egypt. And he goes on to describe the territory. But this whole scene with Abram, he says, Lord, how do I know you're going to keep your promise? He says, All right, Abram, I'll make you a deal. And that deal, like we've talked about so often, when you are striking a contract with another man, hey, I'll buy this piece of land for this amount of money or whatever it was, when you, would, you wouldn't go to the bank and sign a contract, you would get a farm animal and you'd split that sucker down the middle and you'd lay it out and you'd meet in the middle and shake hands. And it was as if to say, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, let it be done to me as it's done to this animal. Now you can see the beauty of this transaction between Abram and God. For Abram fell asleep. 
God went the whole distance. God was saying, Abram, this is not on you. It's not on your faithfulness. Abram, this is on me. This is, this is me. So if some of the Jews did not believe, would God cancel his promises to the nation? Right? So Paul anticipated this again. He knew that there would be Jewish readers who would hear this letter and would disagree with the idea that a physical descendant of Abraham was not a guarantee that God would fulfill his promises. This whole idea of, of circumcision or uncircumcision or works or, or just being a Jew in general. Right? They would disagree. They would say, no, listen, it's our right. And so now they're coming back at Paul and saying, well, listen, right? So, so now we're not going to play this game. We're not going to believe this gospel that you're preaching. Are you telling us that God is just done with the Jew now? And Paul's saying, no, it has nothing to do with your faithfulness. It's God's. See, in their mind, Paul's teaching would nullify all of God's promise to the Jew, but the Bible teaches clearly that before any Jew, regardless of their heritage or pedigree, any Jew, before they inherited anything, uh, must come to this place of a changed heart, a repentance, of a trusting. And that's what Abraham did. Abraham didn't do anything. Abraham fell asleep. But he believed. You see, and that was counted unto him as righteous. So God is faithful. Uh, the Jew actually is still distant from the Lord, even today, as we're sitting here reading this tonight. But see, God is not done with him, and we'll get to that in later chapters uh, of, of Romans. But th then Paul says, you know, let God be true and every man a liar. See, so they're saying, well, now is God just done with us, right? So uh, what you're saying, Paul, is that all of our promises have been null and void now. See, they did not understand, they did not agree with the word of God that Paul was preaching to them. There was, uh, they didn't like it. And when we come to that place where our carnal nature, where what we believe and what God's word says are at odds, boy, we're wrong every single time. See, verse 4 goes on to say, and I'm going to read it in the, the NLT because it says it so clearly. Uh, you will be proved right, this is speaking of God, you will be proved right in what you say and you will win your case in court. In other words, God's always right in the end. Whether we understand it or we don't understand it, it makes no difference. God is right. So when we are at odds, my ideology, my attitude, my perspective on any given situation is at odds with God's word. There's one simple rule to live by. God is right and I'm wrong. That's it. God is right and I'm wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. I don't care how you feel. I don't, I don't care what your situation looks like. I mean, I care how you feel. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't dictate truth. If you disagree with the truth of God's word, that makes you a liar. God is true. It's very simple. And... Spurgeon, he has something to say on this, and this is so fitting for us in our day and age. This is, this is important. We need to key in on this, and we need to live by this. So what Spurgeon says about this, this scripture, let God be true and every man a liar. He says, if God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word like himself is immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. 
The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word, and he thinks more of that than of the universal opinion of men. And amen, Spurgeon. I wish I'd be shouting amen to that. But that's something we need to hear today. It doesn't matter what popular opinion is. It matters what God's word says. And unfortunately, the church has lost her way in that area. Hey, you know what? What's popular in culture? We're going to kind of squeeze everything into that paradigm to make people feel comfortable. But that's not, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Don't fall into that, that whole situation. More important now than, than ever. Verse 5 says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also so judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that, God may, uh, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So Paul again anticipates this question. Right? Okay, so if us being faithless uh, highlights God's goodness, we should just be faithless that God might be glorified, right? Uh, God would be wrong if that was the case. God would be wrong for punishing us for being unfaithful because in the end, he would be punishing me for bringing glory to his name through my disobedience. You see what a ridiculous workaround that is? Uh, they knew it. Uh, if that was the case, if, if, if because of my sin, God is glorified through his goodness, then God could judge nobody. And that's what Paul's saying. Then how could, how could God pour out his wrath on me if in the end I brought him glory? Have you ever heard the, the phrase, the ends justify the means? Right? That's really what is being spoken about here. But it's never okay to do something wrong to accomplish something right. The ends don't justify the means. That's not the way we are to, to live our lives. And Paul says their condemnation is just. That, that whole line of thinking doesn't work. And it sounds like Paul's enemies, they were using this against Paul. They were spreading this rumor. Oh, Paul's out there preaching, preaching salvation through grace and he's giving people license to sin. They think that, that through their sinning, boy, they're glorifying God. And it was, a, it was just a rumor. It was not what Paul's argument was. But there's still legalists today who hate the idea of grace. And the rules are the rules, and the facts are the facts, and we got to live by the rules. And they hate grace. Grace is spiritual anarchy to the legalist. Well, you can't just tell them that they can be forgiven because then they'll just live however they want. They'll be committing sins all day long. Grace is only a license to sin for the lost. Grace is only a license to sin for the lost. When you've been truly saved by grace, when you understand how much God has done for you and how little you deserve it, when your heart has been regenerated, when you've been born again, when old things have passed away and all things become new, the Christian mentality is not to skirt the line, how much can I get away with? Can I still do this and be a Christian? Christians don't ask that question. How much can I get away with and still be a Christian? Christians do not answer or ask that question. Oh, I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyways. 
Christians don't live lives like that. Christians don't want to live on the edge. Christians don't want to grieve the Lord. Am I saying that we don't wrestle? We wrestle with sin. We will. But we ought to be wrestling. It ought to break us. It ought to bother us. If we're just going through life just trying to see how much we can get away with and still be considered Christians, I would seriously reevaluate whether or not you're saved. And Paul here, he's really, uh, this argument, boy, they're they're coming against this idea of of grace. Um, But Paul knew, listen, that doesn't work that way. We're not to live on the edge. And then these last few verses, Paul really kind of just sums up uh, his indictment of of mankind, starting in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin as it is written. So, so who, who are they? When Paul says, well, are we better than they? There are some that say Paul is referring to the Jew. Are we Jews better than the Christians? Because they've been given, I mean, you could make that argument. There is the argument that Paul is speaking to the Christians in Rome. Are the Christians better than the Jews because they're saved and the Jews really aren't? Uh, neither one is superior. And, and that really is the point that Paul is going to make. Uh, that it doesn't matter, uh, you know, where you were born. It matters if you were born again. That's really the bottom line. Um, we ought to never walk around like we are better than, than anybody else in the world. Right? The, 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 the ground, the foot of the cross is, is level. It means that we are all just sinners who desperately need to be saved. We're all sinners. We all need to be saved. And that's what Paul goes on to say as he kind of wraps up this indictment. He says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. It's pretty straightforward. He doesn't leave any wiggle room there whatsoever. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongue, they have preached or practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lisp or their lips. Lisp. That was not against anybody with a speech impediment. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul just kind of lays it all out. And there's none righteous, there's no not one, there's nobody that does good, nobody seeks God, we all seek our own selfish motives. And then he kind of goes from head to toe, you know, about uh, our depravity. Uh, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, this connection between wickedness and our speech. James lays that out in chapter 3 of uh, his book. How the tongue, man, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fire, a world of iniquity. Um, every kind of beast can be tamed, but we can't tame uh, the tongue. It is unruly and evil and full of deadly poison. Um, the tongue is, is a gnarly thing when it's connected to an unregenerated heart. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, it says in Luke 6, 24. There's that connection between the mouth and the heart. If you have a mouth problem, you have a heart problem. Remember that. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. No, you didn't mean to say that out loud. That's what that means. We need a new heart. We need to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh when it's sensitive to God. The feet that are swift to shed blood, to run to destruction. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it. That's our default setting. It really is. Uh, but the feet of the believer are shod with the, the gospel of peace. The mind don't know God's ways of peace. There's, there's no understanding. Uh, and, and he just goes on and on, full of pride in verse 18. There's no fear of judgment, no fear of the Lord. Just eating and drinking and carrying on the days of Noah. 19 and, and, and 20 is, is where we'll end. And I'm going to read it again and then we'll close out. It says, Now we, we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We are all guilty under the law. Whether it's the law that was written on the tablets of stone or the law that was written on the tablets of our heart, we are guilty as guilty as guilty can come. No man can be justified by the law because no man can keep the law. You cannot keep the law. You cannot keep from violating your conscience. You cannot keep the law of Moses. I hope we have figured that out. I hope we figured it out that we cannot keep the law at all. And Paul says this, and I can't wait till Sunday because then we start getting into the good stuff. But Paul is, is painting this picture he says, man, you're all guilty, so every mouth should be stopped. You should not be able to open your mouth and give an excuse. We're really good at excuses when it comes to our sin. I think that's a, a problem. We like to give excuses. Boy, it's his fault or her fault or I was, I was having a bad day. I didn't mean to. I used to use that one all the time when I was a kid. I didn't mean to. I remember my great-grandfather. I was like, I didn't mean to. What do you mean you didn't mean to? You picked up the can of spray paint. You pointed at the house. You pressed the button. How did you not mean to? What did you think was going to happen? And you say, well, I didn't mean to. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that we have no excuse, really, because whatever sin we're tempted in, God has not tempted us above that which we are able, and he's given us a way of escape. We don't fall into sin. We don't trip into sin. We, don't, we choose sin. That's the honest truth. And as long as we're making excuses, we leave the door for forgiveness closed. See, that's the way that works. As long as we're making excuses, the door for forgiveness is closed. It's not until we admit that we are a sinner that we can be forgiven. You cannot bake excuses and forgiveness into the same cake. It doesn't work. In order to be forgiven, we have to say, Lord, I, I've, I've blown it. I'm not making any excuses. I'm owning my sin. It's not until we come to the end of our excuses that we can really be forgiven and saved. So Paul here, he, he, he ends this section with, man, you're all guilty. That's it. Don't even open your mouth. You know, don't say anything. You are guilty. And you say, oh, man, what a bummer. 
we are guilty. And that's exactly what he's getting at. Because it's not until we realize that we're guilty that we realize what's the penalty for our guilt. Oh man, how am I going to pay that? I can't. I'm toast. Let me tell you about Jesus. See, and that's where we'll pick up on Sunday. He has painted the canvas black. He's gotten out the velvet that's black so he can put the diamonds on. The stage is set for us to hear the gospel. Justification by faith, by his grace. And that's what we're going to look at on Sunday. So Lord, thank you for your word, for just the brutal honesty of Paul. Lord, that none escape, but we are all guilty. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who don't make excuses, who don't, who don't play down our sin, but that we would recognize that we can't even open our mouths. It's so clear, Lord, that we are without excuse. But what a beautiful place to be for when we are without excuse boy, then freedom and forgiveness is available. And I just thank you so much for that reality. I thank you, Lord, for your son who came to this world, who entered into the filth of our sin, who took our sin upon himself, who died our death on the cross, that he might give us his righteousness in exchange, that we might be saved. What a wonderful truth, Lord. We are indeed guilty, but Lord, you saved us from that guilt. You set us free, that we put our trust in you. We believe like Abraham, and it's accounted unto us as righteousness. And we can leave this place tonight justified, not because we've earned it, not because we've done anything, but because we put our trust in the one who's done everything. So we love you, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to keep our focus right that you'd help us to keep our, our eyes fixed on you and that reality that we wouldn't make excuses, that we wouldn't put on a front, that we wouldn't try to appease you, but that we would simply admit and be forgiven and walk in all that you have for us. We love you and we thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.